This news is funded by viewers and listeners like you. Please support our work at democracynow.org slash support. From New York, this is Democracy Now! On this vote, the yeas are 216, the nays are 211, the motion is adopted. For the first time ever, the House votes to impeach a cabinet member, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, over the Biden administration's handling of the U.S.-Mexico border. We'll speak with law professor Cesar Cuauhtémoc Garcia Hernandez, author of Welcome the Wretched. Then to Gaza and the killing of a six-year-old girl and her family. Yes, in the car. We're next to the tank. Are you inside the car? <laughs> hello? Hello, hello. Hello. We'll look at the case of Hindrajab, the six-year-old called for help after her family was shot and killed. Two weeks later, their bodies were found alongside the two rescue workers who tried to save her. We'll speak with Palestine Red Crescent about the case. And what is the State Department doing about the killing, the arrests, and the attacks on Palestinian Americans, both in the occupied territories and here at home? Nobody should be dragged out of their home in the middle of the night and beaten over social media reposts. We expect that the Israeli government will release my mother unconditionally so that she may return to the United States. This is our expectation because there's no other rational outcome. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. South Africa's urged the International Court of Justice to take action if Israel goes ahead with its planned ground invasion of Rafah, where over a million displaced Gazans have sought refuge. In a statement, the South African government said it's concerned Israel's actions in Rafah will, quote, result in further large-scale killing, harm and destruction and breach the genocide convention. In January, the ICJ ordered Israel to take steps to prevent genocide in Gaza. On Tuesday, the U.N.'s top humanitarian chief warned an assault on Rafah could, quote, lead to a slaughter in Gaza. In an interview with Reuters, international criminal court prosecutor Karim Khan spoke about the situation in Rafah. Half the population of Gaza are concentrated around uh, Rafah, the population reportedly six times its normal concentration. And when you have a population that is 60 percent children uh, and women, by all accounts, the risks to civilians is profound, and I'm concerned. And I had to underline the fact that um, there's no blank check. There is an active investigation, and all people, all parties are on notice. The Israel government is on notice. Officials, uh, members of the military are on notice that we are investigating. If there are crimes, uh, we'll get to the bottom of it. And uh, we have our judges also here at the ICC to make sure that there's no room for impunity. 
Meanwhile, Politico is reporting the Biden administration's not planning to punish Israel if it launches a military campaign in Rafah without ensuring civilian safety, despite public calls by President Biden to protect civilians. Displaced Palestinians in Rafah say there are no safe places for them to go. We hope the war ends, ends quickly. We're tired of fleeing from one city to another. We're so tired, I swear to God. People are tired. I'm hoping the world stands with us and looks at us with a kind, merciful eye. We're tired. We're always crying. Martyrs, shelling, destruction, death, starvation, thirst. There is no food. While the United Nations is warning Gaza is on the brink of famine, Israel's finance minister, Bezalel Smotrich, has admitted he's blocking a U.S.-funded shipment of flour into Gaza, despite a promise that Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu personally made to President Biden several weeks ago. Smotrich blocked the flour shipment after learning it would be distributed by the U.N. aid agency UNRWA. In the city of Khan Yunis, the Israeli army has forced hundreds of patients, staff and displaced Palestinians to evacuate Nasser Hospital, which has been under an Israeli siege for weeks. Israeli snipers killed at least three people at the hospital Tuesday. In other news from Gaza, an Israeli drone struck a pair of Al Jazeera journalists on Tuesday, seriously injuring correspondent Ismail Abu Omar and his cameraman, Ahmad Matar, who were rushed to the European Gaza hospital in Khan Yunis. Doctors had to amputate Abu Omar's right leg. He's also suffered severe bleeding and still has pieces of shrapnel in his head and chest. The pair were critically injured while reporting on displaced Palestinians in the Rafah region. Al Jazeera accused Israel of deliberately targeting the journalists. According to Palestinian officials, at least 126 journalists have been killed in Gaza since October 7th. On Tuesday, U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres condemned the killing of journalists in Gaza. deeply troubled by the number of journalists that have been killed in this conflict. Freedom of press is a fundamental condition for the people to be able to know what's really happening everywhere in the world. The U.S. State Department has confirmed a 17-year-old Palestinian-American teenager with U.S. citizenship was shot dead Saturday in the town of Bidou in the occupied West Bank. According to the group Defense for Children International, Mohammed Ahmed Mohammed Qadur was shot in the head by Israeli forces while he was sitting in a car with a relative in a wooded area where local residents often pick mushrooms and sage. Mohammed was a senior in high school. Israeli forces and settlers have killed 98 Palestinian children in the occupied West Bank since October 7th. Another U.S. citizen, 17-year-old Palestinian-American Taufik Hafez Taufik Ajak, was shot dead last month. In news from occupied East Jerusalem, Israeli forces have raided and demolished the home of Fakhri Abu Diab, a prominent community leader who's campaigned for years to fight the eviction of Palestinians living in the area of Silwan. Al Jazeera reports Israel has long sought to push out 130 Palestinian families to make room for a biblical theme park. 
In more news from the region, Al Jazeera is reporting the Palestinian human rights lawyer Diala Ayash has now spent nearly a month in jail without charge. She was detained January 17th at an Israeli checkpoint. Prior to her arrest, she'd helped form a new collective of women lawyers to work on the unprecedented number of Palestinians being jailed in the West Bank and Jerusalem following the October 7th Hamas attack. Tension remains high on the Israel-Lebanon border. Earlier today, one Israeli was killed and eight others injured in a rocket attack by Hezbollah. Israel responded by firing a barrage of rockets into southern Lebanon. On Tuesday, Hezbollah leader Hassan Nasrallah vowed attacks would continue until Israel ends its aggression in Gaza, he said. We are fighting in southern Lebanon with our eyes on Gaza. When the aggression stops against Gaza and when the shooting stops in Gaza, we will stop the shooting in the south. In Indonesia, Prabowo Subianto appears to have won today's election in a landslide. Initial results show Prabowo has received well over the needed 50 percent to avoid a runoff. Prabowo is a former general who's been implicated in mass killings in East Timor, Papua and Aceh, as well as the kidnapping and torture of activists in Jakarta. Prabowo is a longtime U.S. protege and the former son-in-law of the former Indonesian dictator Suharto. Critics fear his rise to power could result in the return of military rule in Indonesia. Visit democracynow.org to watch our interview on Tuesday with journalist Alan Nairn in Jakarta on the Indonesian elections. House Republicans voted to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, making him the first sitting cabinet member ever to be impeached. The final vote, 214 to 213. Republicans accused Mayorkas of failing to uphold immigration laws at the U.S.-Mexico border. Following the vote, President Biden issued a statement saying, quote, history will not look kindly on House Republicans for their blatant act of unconstitutional partisanship that has targeted an honorable public servant in order to play petty political games, he said. Three Republicans voted against impeaching Mayorkas. Congressmember Mike Gallagher of Wisconsin, who just announced he'll not seek re-election, warned the vote will, quote, set a dangerous new precedent that will be weaponized against future Republican administrations, unquote. The Democratic-controlled Senate is expected to reject the charges against Mayorkas, which would allow him to remain in office. In 1876, the House voted to impeach War Secretary William Belknap, who resigned just before the vote. Former New York Democratic Congress member Tom Suozzi won a special election Tuesday to fill the open seat left by disgraced Republican Congress member George Santos. Suozzi won nearly 54 percent of the vote, defeating Mazi Pilip, a Nassau County legislator who was born in Ethiopia or later served in the Israeli military. A pro-Palestine protester disrupted Suozzi's victory speech in Long Island. Tom Swazi's win leaves the Republican Party with narrow 219 to 213 edge over Democrats in the House. 
In other congressional news, President Biden's urging Republican House Speaker Mike Johnson to allow for a House vote on the $95 billion foreign aid package approved by the Senate Tuesday. The bill provides $60 billion in military aid for Ukraine, $14 billion for Israel, and $5 billion for allies in the Pacific, including Taiwan. The bill also strips U.S. funding for UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees. The Senate approved the measure by a vote of 70 to 29, with 22 Republicans voting in favor. Three members of the Democratic caucus, Senators Bernie Sanders, Peter Welch and Jeff Merkley, voted against it. The Senate vote came just hours after the European Union's foreign policy chief, Joseph Borrell, urged the United States and other nations to stop providing arms to Israel. How many times have you heard the most prominent leaders and foreign ministers around the world saying too many people are being killed. President Biden said this is too much on the top. It's not proportional. Well, if you believe that too many people are being killed, maybe you should provide less arms in order to prevent so many people being killed. Meanwhile, President Biden's blasted Donald Trump for encouraging Russia to attack NATO allies who don't pay enough in military spending. Can you imagine a former president of the United States saying that? The whole world heard it. The worst thing is he means it. No other president in our history has ever bowed down to a Russian dictator. Well, let me say this as clearly as I can. I never will. For God's sake, it's dumb, it's shameful, it's dangerous, it's un-American. The U.N. has warned of escalating tensions in Senegal as the government intensifies its crackdown on protesters who've taken to the streets since last week denouncing President Macky Sall's postponement of February's election. Sall's government has again cut off mobile Internet access and banned a large mobilization that had been planned for Tuesday. This comes as Amnesty International reported Senegalese security forces recently killed at least three protesters, including a 16-year-old teenager in the capital, Dakar. Ethiopia's army killed at least 45 people last month as they carried out door-to-door -door home raids in what's been described as one of the worst recent acts of violence in the region of Amhara. That's according to Ethiopian human rights advocates who said government forces accused the civilians of supporting the armed group FANO. A pregnant woman was among those shot, according to witnesses. The extrajudicial killings in the town of Marawi come after months of violence between FANO and Ethiopia's military, which had jointly fought Tigray People's Liberation Front until that conflict ended November 2022. Details of January's massacre only emerged in recent days due to a months-long internet blackout in most of Amhara. The Ethiopian Human Rights Commission said the death toll could be higher. Authorities in Texas say the shooter who opened fire at a megachurch in Houston Sunday had legally bought an AR-15-style rifle in December, despite having a criminal record and a history of mental illness. Police identified the shooter as Genesee Van Moreno, who was shot dead by off-duty police officers working inside Christian pastor Joel Osteen's church. Two other people were injured, including the shooter's seven-year-old son, who was shot in the head by off-duty police. Police. He remains in critical condition.
in health news. The Washington Post is reporting the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is considering loosening its COVID isolation guidelines. The CDC currently recommends individuals who test positive to stay home from work and school for five days. Under the proposed guidelines, individuals would not need to isolate if they have mild symptoms and have been fever-free for 24 hours. California and Oregon have already moved away from specific isolation times. And in media news, the parent company of CBS Paramount Global has announced plans to lay off 800 workers, including 20 employees at CBS News. The announcement came just two days after the CBS broadcast of the Super Bowl became one of the most profitable and watched television events in history. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman in New York, joined by Democracy Now! co-host Juan Gonzalez in Chicago. Hi, Juan. Hi, Amy, and welcome to all of our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. For the first time ever, the House has voted to impeach a cabinet member. After failing on its first try last week, the Republican-led House voted Tuesday to impeach Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas over the Biden administration's handling of the U.S.-Mexico border. On this vote, the yeas are 216, the nays are 211. The motion is adopted. The House approved two articles of impeachment accusing Mayorkas of not enforcing U.S. immigration laws and making false statements to Congress. House Republicans have spent months investigating the secretary's actions as they gear up to make immigration a key election issue. They had to push the vote to take place Tuesday because they just won by a one vote margin and a new Democratic member of Congress could have been sworn in today. Former New York Democratic Congress member Tom Suozzi won a special election Tuesday to fill the open seat left by disgraced Republican Congress member George Santos. In a statement, President Biden called Tuesday's impeachment vote by House Republicans a, quote, blatant act of unconstitutional partisanship that targeted an honorable public servant in order to play petty political games, unquote. Meanwhile, the Senate passed a $95 billion military funding package for Ukraine, Israel and Taiwan Tuesday that stripped out a border deal that had been blasted by Trump, even though it was a Republican proposal and would have further militarized the border and ramped up immigration enforcement. For more, we go to New Mexico, where we're joined by Cesar Cuauhtemajasia Hernandez, a law professor and the Gregory Williams Chair in Civil Rights and Civil Liberties at Ohio State University. He's the author of the new book, Welcome the Wretched. His recent op-ed for The New York Times is headlined, This Immigration Bill Was Never Going to Fix the Border. He's joining us from Albuquerque. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Professor. Thank you so much for being with us. So you have the House voting for the first time ever to impeach the Homeland Security um, Secretary, uh, the first time impeaching a cabinet member. And this was over Biden's immigration policy. And at the same time, you have the Republicans rejecting their own proposed border policy that further militarized the border because President Trump didn't like it. If you can talk about the significance of what's taking place right now, where the Democrats and Republicans stand on the border and what needs to be done. 
It's a pleasure to be here with you, Amy Juan. Uh, it, look, I wake up most mornings and I spend a good chunk of my day criticizing the Department of Homeland Security that Se Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas oversees. Um, but the sad reality is that um, the politics of immigration uh, policy have really taken over um, and, and in Congress. Um, there's nothing that Secretary Mayorkas is doing um, that is so out of line with what other top immigration officials have done under both Republican and Democratic administrations uh, to merit the impeachment vote that we saw yesterday. You know, the reality is that uh, the two parties in Congress are trying to out-tough one another um, in, uh, in, in an endless repetition of um, policies that we've seen in the past. The immigration bill that was unveiled in the Senate um, just recently uh, would have devoted more money to hiring more Border Patrol agents, more money to uh, paying for more immigration detention beds across the uh, network that the Immigration and Customs Enforcement Agency uh, operates, and more money for advanced surveillance technologies. All the while, the political bargaining chip was asylum, closing off access to the United States for people who are literally fleeing for their lives and hoping that in the United States they might find safe harbor. So um, yeah, as we, we've seen uh, versions of this, uh, this debate in the past, um, and the reality is that we have never been able to police our way out of people wanting to come to the United States and had this bill um, gotten some traction in, in either the Senate or the House um, in, and, been, and ended up on President Biden's desk. He seems uh, pretty clear he would have signed it, um, but um, my expectation is that we would have been in much the same situation just a few years down the road. And, and Cesar, what about some of the Republican arguments uh, uh, on this one that the president was, uh, uh, they were very concerned about his, uh, they claim he was abusing the his parole authority and paroling large numbers of people uh, uh, unnecessarily into the United States. Also, this whole issue of the proposed bill about closing the border, if it goes over, uh, if the uh, uh, the entries between ports of entry uh, go above 4,000 uh, uh, per day on average. Uh, what would closing the border mean? Are they talking about closing the border to just people coming over or also to all of the traffic, uh, the commercial traffic uh, that that crosses that border every single day? The, the parole authority that um, Republicans in the House really rallied a, a, around as, as a, one of the, 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 um, the reasons why they moved forward with this impeachment vote against Secretary Mayorkas um, is, is truly an astonishing uh, reflection of, of, a, of, of a lack of historical understanding. You know, parole has been part of federal immigration law since the middle of the 20th century. It was first used on a large scale un, while while Dwight Eisenhower was sitting in the Oval Office in the middle in the 1950s, um, it's been used by presidential administrations uh, ever since then. Um, and if they don't like the way that the Biden administration is using it now, 
fine, but it, 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 is, a, it is a law that is um, enacted, that was enacted by Congress, um, and Congress can change that law if they so choose. Um, but to claim that Secretary Mayorkas is overseeing a department that is uh, uh, violating or subverting immigration law by exercising a legal authority that is embedded in existing immigration law um, is, is truly um, uh, 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 saddening. Um, and, but when it comes to um, uh, President Biden's uh, declaration um, that uh, had he already received the power that this bill would, would, would give him and other presidents, he would have closed down the border, that's also um, a truly astonishing statement to make by any president, uh, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat. Because, of course, uh, those of us who, who have lived and those of us who, who have spent time in border communities understand that the border is far more uh, than just the the site of chaos and crisis that um, we would imagine if all we do is listen to members of Congress or, 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 or members of the White House team uh, talk about the border. It's also families that straddle uh, communities across both sides of, of the border. It's economic relationships. It's cultural ties um, that extend for, for generations. Um, and to, and to uh, promise um, to shut down the border really uh, doesn't doesn't give much weight to all of the meaning that goes um, to to those people who make their lives and 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 hope for their futures um, in these communities. Whether we're talking about um, San Diego and the uh, on the the western um, tip or or Brownsville on the eastern eastern tip, the power that this bill would have given would basically have targeted asylum seekers specifically. It would it would have exempted U.S. citizens and lawful permanent residents, folks with green cards. Um, but it would have shut off access to people reaching um, the United States specifically to request uh, asylum, that is to request legal safe harbor, despite the fact that there's a federal law on the books since 1980 that says anyone who's in the United States and is physically present and is afraid for their lives can request asylum. This bill would have uh, empowered uh, the, the uh, presidential, the, the, the Department of Homeland Security um, to really just turn them around. That's exactly what we see, saw under President Trump um, during his uh, use of the Title 42 policy. Um, and the Biden administration seems quite willing to return to that um, Trump, uh, Trump era. And I also wanted to ask you, the, um, uh, there's in, uh, to what degree is all of this uh, border chaos narrative uh, affecting not just uh, 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 average uh, white Americans, but also within the black and Latino communities as more and more migrants are being uh, sent to the northern cities, there seems to be increasing uh, tension, for instance, between uh, Mexican and Central Americans, uh, many of whom are undocumented but have been in this country for decades and are now seeing all of this attention focused on the latest migrants. What's your assessment of the potential for divisions, even within the Latino community, uh, as well as uh, other uh, communities of color, uh, as the failure of the federal government to deal with the current migrant surge uh, uh, accelerates. It's impossible to ignore the fact that the first uh, Latino to head the, sec the Department of Homeland Security is also the first cab sitting cabinet secretary in the history of the United States 
to be impeached. But on top of that, we're seeing that communities of color are really being uh, vilified um, in, in, in this, this notion that these masses of, of, of people who are doing exactly what people have done for generations, that is, reach the United States, hopeful that in this land of opportunity, they might begin a new life, that in this country, they might uh, reach the economic prosperity that is unavailable to them in the, in the, in the places that they um, are fleeing, and that in this, in, in this land, uh, in this country, they might provide their children with a, a, a secure and safe future that they cannot do, do in, 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 the, in the homes that they are uh, leaving uh, behind. And in that sense, um, the, the folks who we're seeing coming to the United States these days from South America, from Central America, from various countries um, across Africa and the Caribbean um, are in no, no, no meaningful way uh, different uh, from the folks who came uh, a century ago or or, or, or more, um, and yet we're seeing in places like um, like Denver and other other cities um, that democratic-led mayoral uh, city governments are asking asking for their staff to cut essential services that are heavily used by uh, communities of color that reside in, in those places. In Denver, for example, the mayor um, has announced that the local uh, youth recreation centers will be cutting back their hours um, as a way of paying for, for support that the city is, is, is giving to, to, to migrants. Meanwhile, they're not taking advantage of the fact that there may be some other options available to them uh, to, to support migrants without having to make those, um, those difficult trade-offs that essentially pit you know, one community against another. Um, <clears throat> the Republican-led House had to vote yesterday, on Tuesday, on impeaching Mayorkas because they won by just one vote, 214 to 213. Um, and a new Democratic member of Congress would have been sworn in today, and that would have meant that they wouldn't win. They'd already failed in the vote last week. Uh, the former New York Democratic Congress member Tom Suozzi won that special election Tuesday to fill the open seat left by disgraced Republican Congress member George Santos. Suozzi won nearly 54 percent of the vote, defeating Mazie Pillip, a Nassau County legislator who was born in Ethiopia, served in the Israeli military, moved to Long Island. Swazi's victory leaves the Republican Party with a narrow edge over Democrats in the House. Many of the TV commercials that um, Pillip and Swazi ran during the campaign focused on immigration. This is a Long Island Queens race. This is one of the winner Tom Swazi's ads. The southern border is 2,000 miles away, but the migrant crisis has landed right in our own backyard. I'll work across the aisle to do what our leaders haven't, secure our border. Close the routes used for illegal immigration, but open paths to citizenship for those willing to follow the rules. And pay a fee to help finance it all. In the past, I've worked with Republican Peter King on a compromise solution to the migrant problem. I'll work with anyone to get it done. So that was Tom Suozzi. Cesar Cuauhtémoc Garcia Hernandez, if you can tell us more about, I mean, he really ran on immigration. It was the number one issue, um, that and abortion, um, of this largely Long Island um, uh, district. 
Can you talk about the fact that the Democrats adopted the Republican stance on militarization, um, and yet it was the Republicans that rejected it, and what this bodes for what's happening next? The idea that Democrats can out-tough the, the Republican Party when it comes to, to immigration policy is a dead-end strategy. Um, we, we, the, the politicians like to imagine that we can police our way out of immigration policy problems, um, but they're imagining a fantasy world that has never existed and does not exist right now. If the solution to, to, to regulating migration were to be bought by more Border Patrol agents, by more ICE prison beds, by more advanced uh, uh, technologies that are being deployed at, uh, um, communities that cross the border on a regular basis, then we would have bought that solution a long time ago. But the reality is that so long as people um, have a desire to get to the United States, so long as people have families and fr family and friends who are already in the United States, and so long as people are able to begin those, li those lives that they dream of in the United States by uh, getting to work soon after arriving, which we all know is exactly what happens in cities and towns, large and small across this country, whether those migrants have the federal government's permission to work or not, then people are going to be coming. And if, if what elected officials want is to find out who's coming to the United States, is, is to ensure that there is an orderly migration process, then they need to open up um, the lawful pathways into the United States. Um, and the bill that, 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 uh, that was introduced in Congress did begin, would have begun to move in that direction, not nearly enough. And, it, and, and those, those uh, positive um, attributes were really um, overshadowed um, by some of the, the policing-focused um, approaches and also the clampdown on asylum. Um, and, and, and what happens is if, if, if we simply uh, reinforce uh, the, the border by building Trump-style walls or deploying more law enforcement agents, then all we're doing is uh, turning uh, the migration process into something that is more expensive and more dangerous. And the result is we then push people further into the uh, hands of unscrupulous smugglers um, and also uh, make it more likely that they will die in the process of getting to the United States. Cesar, I wanted to ask you, um, I think it was last year, uh, Mexico passed China to become the largest trading partner of the United States. It is the number one country for imports and exports of goods uh, uh, in, uh, to the United States. Uh, how do you reconcile the fact that uh, people, uh, leaders in this country have no problem with increasing goods crossing the border? In fact, no one complains about all the goods that are crossing the border between Mexico and the United States, but uh, want to erect, as you say, barriers and, and restrictions on the flow of people back and forth across uh, that same border. Well, the, the, the United States is a vital trade partner of, 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 of Mexico and, and, and vice versa. This is not a, 
a, a new, new phenomenon, nor is the fact that we're perfectly happy uh, to see a free exchange of, of goods and, 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 and products, um, uh, but not so happy to, to see uh, an exchange of, of people. But the reality is that the people are going to be crossing the border uh, anyway. Um, the pe- people are crossing the border. People come into the United States. Sometimes they have the government's permission to come here, and they, they stay after the, uh, after the fact. That's true of Canadians. That's true of Western Europeans. That's true of Mexicans. Um, that's, that's not that's not a result of of, of of citizenship. That's just the result of the fact that you know, life happens and 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 priorities shift over over time. And and so if if what we what we truly want is to uh, encourage cross border ties, then we need to stop using the border as a political uh, 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 baseball bat to, to 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 beat political opponents with. You know, we've seen the Biden administration shut down ports of entry for a few days at a time. Um, um, we've seen the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, uh, the demand uh, inspection of 100% of the cargo, uh, commercial cargo uh, carrying vehicles crossing at certain ports of entry in a way as a, as a way of you know, making a point about uh, border security. And all of these have an enormous impact, not simply on the people, but also on the economic relationship between the United States and Mexico. Um, and it's in the interest of the United States to have a strong Mexican economy, just like it's in the interest of the of, of the Mexican uh, citizens to have a strong U.S. economy. Uh, we are not living in vacuums. We will never live in vacuums. We cannot seal ourselves off from uh, any any uh, part of the world, and certainly not from our neighbors, from places that many of us um, have strong ties to. Many of us have uh, family, and in fact. Many of us have lived there. You mentioned uh, my, my latest book, Welcome the Wretched. I wrote most of that book while sitting in my apartment in Mexico City. Um, so this is not a, a, a faraway land uh, that's unfamiliar to many of us. For many of us, when we think of migration from Latin America, we think of our family. We think of our friends. We think of our neighbors and the people who are closest to us and most meaningful to us. You're a professor of law, and I want to talk about your book in the context of, well, this border deal included something like $7 billion for ICE to increase deportation and detention of immigrants. Um, talk about your book, Welcome the Wretched, uh, in defense of the criminal alien, um, in which you make the case against the criminalization of immigrants and also argue immigrants should not be deported if they're charged or convicted of a crime. Um, talk about what you mean and what you're advocating for. The United States is, is, is nothing if not a country um, that has been built by wholly ordinary people. People who have risen to their finest moments when the time called for it, uh, but people whose lives are also peppered by their worst moments, that is, failures, that is, moments in which we engage in regrettable conduct and reprehensible conduct. And that has nothing to do with their citizenship and everything to do with their humanity. And that is true of migrants who are coming today. And that was true of migrants who have come, uh, who came in generations past. The reality is that most of us spend most of our days trying to be the best versions of ourselves, ourselves. And the reality is that all of us fail to be those best versions of ourselves at one moment or another. And so I want immigration law 
to reflect the reality of the humans that it is supposed to serve.、Um, and those humans are people who will, on most occasions, try to do right by their families and their friends and their neighbors. But sometimes they will inevitably fail. And I want this to be a country、um, that accepts people. For being exactly the fallible, imperfect humans that those of us who happen to have been born into our U.S. citizenship are,、um, and and that quite often we celebrate,、um, whether that's in popular culture or whether we're talking about elected officials who are facing dozens of indictments at a given time、uh, for for anything from you know insurrection against the 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 country to to sexual violence against against women. Well, clearly, this is a major issue that will continue throughout this election year and beyond, and we'll continue to cover it. Cesar Cuatemacarcia Hernandez, want to thank you so much for being with us. Law professor at Ohio State University, author of the new book "Welcome the Wretched: In Defense of the Criminal Alien." We'll also link to your op-ed in the New York Times headline: "This immigration bill was never going to fix the border." Coming up, what's the State Department doing about the killing? The arrests and the attacks on Palestinian Americans, both in the occupied territories and here at home. Stay with us. Age by Thomas Bengalter. This is Democracy Now. DemocracyNow.org. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. A Palestinian American detained in the West Bank by the Israeli military last week was beaten in custody and denied medication. This is according to her family. Samaher Ismail was detained near the Silwad village area in the West Bank February 5th. The family said she was dragged from her home by Israeli soldiers and badly beaten. They also said her home was destroyed in the raid. The Israeli military confirmed Ismail's detention, saying she was arrested for quote incitement on social media, but did not respond to the allegations of mistreatment raised by the family. The family is calling on the State Department to gain consular access to her. And to secure her release, at a press briefing, the State Department said it could not address any specifics about the case. Samaher Ismail's case is just one of a number of Palestinian Americans detained, attacked, or killed, both in the occupied West Bank and in the United States. And we're going to go through some of those cases. We're joined now by Samaher Ismail's son, Suleiman Hamed. He's joining us from New Orleans. 
And we're joined from Atlanta by Edward Ahmed Mitchell, a civil rights attorney and national deputy director of CARE. That's the Council on American Islamic Relations. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Um, Samaher, can you, t um, uh, Suleiman, can you tell us about your mother? Where was she when she was detained? Um, what's exactly happened to her? Have you been able to communicate with her in the Israeli jail that she's being held? Uh, yeah, so I'm Suleiman Hamid. Uh, I can give you a little bit of insight on that. So it was Monday morning, February 5th, Jerusalem time. Uh, they came in the middle of the night, raided our home, uh, dragged her out of the house in her pajamas, didn't even give her a chance to wear her hijab. Um, they broke stuff all inside the house. They came in with muddy shoes on purpose. Um, and uh, long story short, they came and took her. And ever since we have no, we have not had any communication with her. Um, it's been very traumatic, very anxiety-inducing. Um, yeah, that, that's what happened. And uh, you know, we're hearing there's not even a formal charge. Um, on Monday, the judge ruled that she's not a security threat, and there was no charge, so he allowed her to get put out on bail. And the I'm not sure exactly who the, the idea for. The Israeli military commission, somebody appealed it and they have an automatic appeal process. So once that happened, she had to be in detention for what I believe is at least another four days, maybe up to another week. And from there, we'll see what they're just trying to find the charge now to charge her with, even though she's been in custody for a week. And this past week, she's been, you know, questioned, interrogated, all that. You know, it seems like they're just trying to find something to pin her um, just because they're annoyed with her for speaking her mind. Um so, yeah. So so when they came into your home, there was no explanation, whatever, why they were there or uh, were they specifically looking for her uh, or were they uh, seeking other people when they came into your home? No, no. I mean, apparently they were looking for her, but we had no knowledge like she would have been fine with coming in. And like if they had something against her, she would have definitely like came in and handled the situation but no we had no idea she was wanted or they were looking for her they did come into my village that day and they took multiple people uh, all for what it appears to be like social media just something that they may have liked that they don't like you know something just supporting palestine or um so well that's all i know about that let's bring in uh edward ahmed mitchell to talk about samahar ismail's case and then mm -hmm. we're going to talk about the other cases, another young man uh, from your community itself, from Gretna, a Palestinian-American, was just killed by Israeli forces in the occupied West Bank. But first, let's continue with Asama Hare's arrest. Edward Ahmed Mitchell, you and Suleiman and others held a news conference on Monday in Washington, D.C., demanding the State Department deal with these Palestinian-Americans. Uh, can you talk about what they're saying about Samaher Ismail? Thanks for having me, Amy. So, look, the Israeli government is completely out of control. They're not only committing a genocide against Palestinians in Gaza, but they are targeting, kidnapping, even killing Palestinian-Americans in Gaza and the West Bank. This attack on Samahar is just the latest example of that. And our State Department is, to be frank, uh, not doing enough. Um, they claim they are working behind the scenes to look into the issue. 
They made general statements about the importance of protecting American citizens abroad. But the reality is they are not publicly condemning or taking any concrete action to hold the Israeli government accountable for abusing American citizens. And if even Palestinian Americans are not safe, you can imagine that Palestinians are not safe at all. Uh, and so that's the, the condition we're in. The State Department uh, is just making general vague statements you know, that they could say about anything, boilerplate statements, but they're not using any concrete action to protect American citizens who are being attacked by the Israeli government. We're going to break and then come back to this discussion and talk about a young man from Gretna, Louisiana, just like Samaher Ismail is from Gretna, Louisiana. Uh, but this teen was killed. We're talking to Edward Ahmed Mitchell, civil rights attorney and national deputy director of CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations. And we're speaking with Samaher's son, Suleiman Hamad. Stay with us. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Um, <clears throat> the family of... We're looking at calls for the U.S. State Department to address the killing, the arrests and attacks on Palestinian Americans, both in the occupied territories and here at home. We just spoke about the case of Samaher Ismail, a Palestinian-American woman from Gretna, Louisiana, forcibly taken by Israeli soldiers in the occupied West Bank earlier this week. Meanwhile, the family of two Palestinian-American brothers say the pair, their Canadian father and three other relatives, have been detained after an Israeli raid on their home in Gaza. The brothers Barak and Hashem Lagha are age 18 and 20. National Security Spokesperson John Kirby said the U.S. will talk to Israel about the detention of the brothers as well as Samahard Esmail. Um, we also learned about the stabbing in Texas, uh, uh, the Sunday stabbing in Austin of 23-year-old Palestinian-American Zachariah Dor, um, which is being called a hate crime. For more, we continue with Edward Ahmed Mitchell, civil rights attorney and national deputy director of CARE. 
the Council on American Islamic Relations and Suleiman Hamed uh, Samaher Ismail's son. Um, if you can talk about this arrest, killing, and detention uh, and, t and uh, attacks on Palestinian Americans and what the State Department is saying in each case. We've also uh, learned about the killing of two Palestinian American teens, uh, one in Bilou. The State Department is just saying they're looking into this, um, as well as another young man from Gretna. Amy, sadly, you have described what the State Department is saying, and it's what they say every time this happens. We're looking into it. We care about American citizens abroad. Uh, and that's about all you get from them. No condemnations of the Israeli government, no concrete action, uh, nothing. Uh, and so whether it's the shooting of the young man from New Orleans who was shot in the head while driving in a car with his family, uh, whether it's the kidnapping of the two Palestinian Americans from Gaza, one of them already had a broken leg and whose home had been destroyed twice by Israeli bombing, you don't get much from the State Department other than we're looking into it and we care about the safety of American citizens abroad. What they need to be doing is very clearly and explicitly condemning the Israeli government for attacking not only American citizens who are in Palestine, but also Palestinians in general. And as long as the Israeli government feels that the American government will not hold them accountable for even targeting American citizens, then of course, they're gonna target everyone uh, without any sort of, with, uh, with impunity, uh, sadly, and that's what we're seeing happen. I wanted to ask uh, Suleiman, uh, the the efforts by all the attention so far in uh, world press coverage has been on Gaza for the most part, not on what is happening to Palestinians in the West Bank. You mentioned that when your mother was taken, uh, was arrested, there were others in this in your same uh, uh, town that were arrested by the IDF. Can you talk about what life is like? for those living in the West Bank uh, today? Yeah, of course. Um, it's, it's filled with just humiliation, uh, harassment by Israeli forces. They come in, uh, they, they can come in in the middle of the night and take your little boy, take your little girl, take your mom, take your dad. Um, they have no respect for us. They have said on record multiple times that they see us as animals and and that's how it feels like we're second class even third class citizens to them and like you said like this was all in the west bank this isn't a war zone there's no there's no um hamas there's nothing like that over there so um it's just again they they treat us poorly and i, I want to actually add something because i forgot to mention this but you know about my mom's condition uh, her lawyer had said that um she had been beaten in prison. She she witnessed and wrote an official statement that we got to the U.S. Embassy that said that she had bruises, black and blue, all over her body, specifically on her hands and back. Um, she was she was shaking from lack of like I guess medication and the abuse she's received. Um, they've had her medication for seven for over seven days now. Now it's like day nine, and they still have yet to administer it. Um, you know, they're just cruel. They're cruel. And, you know, it's not a way to treat a person, first of all, and not a way to treat a U.S. citizen. And I, I want to see the embassy, you know, speak up about that. And I want to go, go see my mom. I want to go to State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller addressing reporters on Tuesday. When we see reports of U.S. citizens that have been detained, 
have been arrested, that have been killed, have been in any way potentially mistreated, we first gather information. If it's appropriate, we ask for a full investigation. If that investigation shows that there ought to be accountability, we call for accountability measures. I will also state that when it comes to activity in Israel, we, the United States has shown that it is willing to impose its own accountability measures when you think it's appropriate. So that's Matthew Miller. Um, and I want to address this to the lawyer, uh, looking also at the case of Taufik Abdel-Jabbar, the 17-year-old Palestinian-American shot and killed in the occupied West Bank last week. Taufik was born again in Gretna, Louisiana, across the river from New Orleans. He and his family returned frequently to their ancestral home in the village of Al-Masra, um, uh, Al-Sharqaya, in the occupied West Bank. On January 19, uh, Taufik and a friend were driving in a pickup truck on a dirt road near the village when they came under fire from at least 10 shots hitting the truck. One of the bullets struck Taufik in the head. Uh, the car skidded off the road, flipped several times before coming to a stop. He was pronounced dead when he was brought to the hospital in Ramallah. Israeli police didn't identify who fired the shots, but described the incident as, quote, ostensibly involving an off-duty law enforcement officer, a soldier and a civilian. The White House has called for a transparent investigation into the killing. Edward Ahmed Mitchell, if you can tell us more about this case, and then we'll talk about just what happened outside Austin, Texas, a case you're representing as well. So it's been almost a month since that young man was shot in the head and killed. Has the State Department done anything more? Has the Israeli government announced charges against those responsible? No, because they're not going to do it. You don't ask the abuser to investigate himself. What the State Department is doing is releasing boilerplate statements after these incidents occur, and then nothing happens. And you know this because you can go back even further. We all remember the assassination of Shireen Abu Akleh, what, a few years ago. Has anyone been charged with killing her? Has the Israeli government held anyone accountable? No. In fact, the Israeli government has said they're not going to charge anyone with killing her, even though it was a sniper who did it. She was wearing a press vest. And even the people who tried to save her were then shot at. The Israeli government is not going to hold itself accountable. Only the American government can do that. But the American government is refusing to do so. And so whether it's, again, the young man who was shot in the head, the two people who were kidnapped in Gaza, or Samahar who was kidnapped in the West Bank, you see the same pattern over and over and over again. The State Department says something um, very basic and generic, and then they don't do anything about it, and they wait for the story to fade away. And that sends the message to Israel, you can do whatever you want, even to American citizens, and no one will hold you accountable. And how significant is it that the Austin police have declared a hate crime of the attack on Zachariah Dorr and his friends in Austin? Explain what happened. You are involved with this case, Edward? Yes. Yeah, so this is a case we've been helping with. So uh, on February 4th, uh, there was a pro ceasefire protest held in Austin. After this event, Zachariah and three of his friends were traveling home in a car. They had the Kafia uh, flag hanging out of their car with free Palestine written on it. They had other signs of Palestine on the car. When they got to a stop sign, a man named uh, uh, Brent Baker approached their car, attempted to rip the flag off the car and then attack them, opened uh, the back door, pulled Zachariah out of the car. A fight ensued. His three friends jumped out and tried to help him. They subdued the guy, the attacker, and then he pulled out a knife. And Zachariah actually jumped in the way of one of his friends and saved them, uh, but was stabbed in the process. So uh, the police department relatively quickly uh, confirmed what we knew and what we'd said and we asked them to say, which is that it was a 
a hate crime. And this is just the latest example of an anti-Palestinian or anti-Muslim hate crime in the United States. We all know about the six-year-old boy Wadia who was stabbed and killed outside of Chicago back in October by his anti-Muslim landlord. Uh, we know about the shooting of three Palestinian college kids in Burlington, Vermont, who are again wearing the kafiyah out in public and just shot on the street. This is happening again and again because, Amy, there's not only a war happening against Palestinians in Gaza, there is a war happening against Palestinian Americans, a war on their right to free speech, a war on their culture, uh, and that is designed to silence them. And you can't weaponize anti-Muslim bigotry and anti-Palestinian racism against people in Gaza without it having blowback here in America on people right here at home. And that's what we've been seeing over the past uh, four months. Suleiman, your final comment as we wrap up this segment, uh, if you can uh, talk about your mother. Yeah, sure. Uh, my mom, I mean, she's the sweetest lady. Everybody, everybody knows her in our community. She's a teacher. She was a teacher, a businesswoman, a mother of four. Um, she raised us with good morals. She raised us to be good kids, professionals. Um, again, just the sweetest woman, a helper. She just, again, she expresses her opinion and sometimes she demands justice and you know, I applaud her for that. She's a she's my hero for that. Um, I don't think it's anything for her to be imprisoned about. Well, so, Suleiman uh, Hamed, we want to thank you for being with us. We'll continue to follow your mother's case. And Edward Ahmed Mitchell, civil rights attorney and national deputy director of CARE, the Council on American Islamic Relations. That does it for our show. Um, we want to thank all those who participated in producing today's broadcast. Mike Burke, Renee Fels, Nermeen Sheikh, Dina Geister, Messiah Rhodes. I'm Amy Goodman with Juan Gonzalez. Go to democracynow.org for all transcripts and podcasts. This news is funded by viewers and listeners like you. Please support our work at democracynow.org slash support.